Okay, let's talk then about the middle letters of uh, Paul, and I think Hebrews is the other one we'll be looking at here. Talking about those that have come at more in the middle part. These are somewhere in the 60s, uh, some of them during Paul's stay in Rome. Reading the epistles, just to give you a little insight into how that happens. First of all, it'd be better, it's wonderful, as I've tried to talk about with all of them, who's involved in this? Who wrote it? Uh, who they wrote it to? Is there a context? Is the writing? Is the questions of the Corinthians or just Paul introducing himself to the Romans? Or as we're going to get to the pastoral epistles later, what Paul's telling Timothy and Titus to do on Crete. So who, who's it for? Nine of these letters are written by Paul to churches, to groups of people in given areas. They're not churches like we think of them today. I know we read the word church and we think of the, the group on the corner with the name, the first something or other of someone or other. And we think that's what, those, that's what those churches look like. These were loosely affiliated groups of people in a community, usually their life together orbited around someone's home a home that was open, hospitable, and people met and gathered there. But their life together was not a meeting. Their life together, we have very little evidence or detail in Acts or even in the letters of actual meetings. We know the, the Corinthians gathered on the first day of the week. We don't know that anyone else did. So we took that as a principle. So everybody gathers the first day of the week. And most people today can't see church beyond a meeting on Sunday morning somewhere or Saturday or Saturday night. The early church saw the church as a series of relationships. People who knew each other, walked together, were together. Paul writes nine of those to churches, four of those to individuals, as we'll see. The general epistles are varied. Some are to specific groups. Some are to wider circular letters. We'll talk about that as we get to them individually. The structure, uh, Paul, we talked about from indicatives to imperatives. That's, that's the thing I want you to know about Paul's letters, particularly the ones we're going to get into now. Until you know the truth, you can't live the truth. The problem we have is skipping people knowing, not just intellectually knowing truth, but relationally knowing the truth with a capital T, you can't live it. And we've just reduced it to the ethics of these epistles and leave out the relationship side of it. We devour people and we end up with legalism by default. You can't end up anywhere else. But this is your performance and these are the standards and you've got to meet them. The content of the letter, uh, the context of the letter, where does it fit in their story of the people he's writing to? What's going on in that area? We're going to see an interesting thing at the end of tonight as to how we get to see seven different snapshots of the church of Ephesus just because of the way the letters work out and the way Acts and Revelation works out. We actually get to see seven snapshots of this one community of people and their ever-changing reality and the counsel they're being given changes. So if you really understand that, you can't come through the epistle saying there is a way to do it that works for all time, all places, all people. You go, no, boy, if anything, the epistles themselves defy that. So the context of it, situations they're in, what they're being told. And then what does this speak to my life? There's not a time when I read the scriptures. Yes, I'm reading it to see how this fits into a larger story. But there's not a day I read where I've not got things in my life I'm holding before the Father saying, is there anything in what I'm reading about today that informs that decision? I'll give you an example. I'm reading Ecclesiastes a few months ago. In a, in a situation with someone that's very, very confusing to me, someone I love very, very dearly. It's not my wife. We just can't seem to get some things that we wanted to do together to work together the way we hoped. And I'm reading Ecclesiastes in the message. And one of the things it said is, how can two walk together or hold hands unless they're going to the same destination? And it was in that moment, reading that passage, I realized that what this brother of mine wanted and what I wanted were two different things. And we kept trying to find the same way together, even though we weren't going the same place. 
And that became just a great moment of liberty that came out of reading the scriptures. So I'm reading the scriptures. I'm looking for stuff that immediate to my life. And it doesn't happen every day. I always find something. I don't stop. I can read a whole chapter with my mind somewhere else. Ever done that? Read through some reading and realize there's nothing. I couldn't sit here and summarize what I just read to you for anything because my mind was not here. And yeah, I read it again and I read it again. I want to come away with something that I can write down in my journal, though that's not required. Just write down and say, that spoke to me today. This opened up something new about the Father. This gave me wisdom about a situation I'm in. Something. Now, I don't force it. If I've read it three or four times and just nothing's clear about it, then I just meditate it during the day. I'll just let it continue during the day. I'll ruminate on it. I'll think about it. And because, of, because I've done this so often, and I, I know I have a bit of a dysfunctional memory and that it's better than most people get, unfortunately. Before I even open Galatians chapter 4, I can pretty well quote the passage. I can tell you what's in it. And a lot of times it gets so familiar, you stop thinking it while you're reading it. So it takes a lot for me to stop and say, when I get rid of Matthew 10, I know, I, but when I open to Matthew 10, I know what's coming. <laughs> I say, okay, I know what's coming, but I'm going to read it like I've never read it before. I'm going to try and do that. Because then you find things that you've always missed because you get so familiar with the, the, the grain. So that's just some of the counsel that I use. Let's then talk about the middle letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and then the book of Hebrews. These are all written, as I said, mid-60s. The prison epistles is what we call Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. The evidence in the books, and you can see that when you read them in depth, they're written at the same time in Paul's life, seemingly. He's in prison in Rome. He was in prison twice in Rome. There's other imprisonments, so there's other people that say, well, maybe this is uh, when he was in Caesarea Philippi for two years in prison, but the evidence doesn't seem to support that. Uh, because he fought wild beasts, some people thought that's one thing they did in Ephesus, but there's no evidence that Paul was ever in prison in Ephesus. So we kind of reject that. And that kind of comes down to probably Rome after Paul's mission, the fourth journey getting to Rome. And, but because of what he's saying, the commonality of, of subject matter, because with some of them, the same person is delivering the letter, which is one of the players. There's usually an author, sometimes a secretary, and then there's somebody who delivers the message and someone who receives it. In this case, Onesimus takes not only Philemon's epistle back to Philemon, who happens to be a part of the Colossian church, but he's also taking Colossians back to them in that book. And so he's the same. So we know these were written about the same time. The content between Philip, or Ephesians and Colossians is gosh, so close to identical, the whole church and the unity of the church. And then Philemon is all part of that. Philippians seems to be because in the earlier epistles, we get no sense that Paul knows this time's going to end. In Philippians, he begins to be more hopeful that his, that his time of getting out of prison is, is fastly approaching. So maybe he's already after his trial. He sees that this is going to be released from there. And the tradition says he was released, went on to Spain, came back to a later Roman imprisonment where he was executed. And we'll talk about that one a little bit later. Um, there's different temper to the Philippians account. And so it's probably the Romans' imprisonment, 59 to 61 AD is probably when these were written. Ephesians... Gosh, it's one of the best books in the world about church and church life. And this is where Paul's theology now is developed. When you read the first chapter of Ephesians, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the interplay between those three, I don't see how you can get through Ephesians 1 and not be a Trinitarian, even though the word Trinity is not contained in Scripture. And I know people make an issue out of things. The word inerrancy is not in Scripture. The word infallibility is not in Scripture. And yet people fight over the inerrancy of Scripture and even what it means. You know, I mean, we haven't used that word a lot. I was going to talk about earlier with that other letter I haven't do I believe I believe the Bible is completely trustworthy I do 
I don't know what the Bible being infallible means. A friend of mine from Australia was asked one time if he believed in the infallibility of the Bible. And I loved his answer. What he said was, I believe in the infallibility of the God of the Bible. I do too. I believe in that. I do think this, when you get this revelational flow and this full of scripture and how God's making himself known, if you're saying infallibility means every verse is true in its literal sense, then you're not even interpreting scripture fairly because scripture says some things that being said here are not true and they're a problem. And so we're all, we're getting that from scripture itself. So I, I really don't, those are not terms. When the Bible doesn't use them a lot, I don't use them a lot because I don't know what they mean. Inspired, I get that. Trustworthy, I get that. Is this the objective truth on which we can anchor some of that belief and kind of help define this playground where we get to enjoy God's fullness? I think we can, and I absolutely trust it for that. But I want it to say what it says, not just think every verse is true and carries the same weight in the same way. So Paul's not writing any particular problem to the Ephesians. Paul's been with them twice already. He helped establish them, was there two years. He comes back later on a trip back to Jerusalem, meets with the Ephesian elders. And so the theme of this is the church as the fullness of Christ. They, uh, each of us are on a journey, and each of us get to experience the life of Jesus, and that's wonderful and great. But the church is this family God's calling together from all over the world and linking people together and gives us greater wisdom through the whole. We each seem to get a facet of who God is. But when I get my facet near your facet and near yours and near yours, and we share that and you see glimpses of God, I don't see. And instead of I don't see it, you must be wrong. Wow, you must be seeing things I don't see. And I want to see what you see because that gives me, as, as I said, Ephesians 1.21, the church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So when Paul writes in Colossians or Corinthians and says, each of us sees through a glass darkly. But then he talks about the church is the fullness of him. So again, I don't think church is our obligation. Like you have to go to church and you should be in a church and the, particularly the way we've defined church in our day. But I think what Ephesians teaches is the community of brothers and sisters on a relational journey is an irresistible reality. If you know God as Father, you're going to want to be connected to people who are your brother and sister. And I find those conversations with brothers and sisters on this journey to be engaging. There's eight of us got together for lunch this afternoon. Just uh, people that came from out of the area just had a great time, having a chance to get to know each other a bit and where our lives are from. And I find those things irresistible. I don't find it's like, well, you know, we should. We should get to know each other because we're the body of Christ after all. And I think Paul paints that picture here. It's the fullness of Christ. So there's no personal greetings in Ephesians, which is interesting because he knows a lot of people there, obviously. So it may have been what something, it may be a circular letter, not just to the Ephesians, but got circulated more widely. Uh, there's the equality of the Jew and blank there. It should be Gentile. I don't know where he went. He got lost uh, on, the, on the script. Are you looking at the same thing I am? And then uh, there's two prayers. There's two wonderful prayers, two major prayers and two smaller prayers. One Ephesians 1, the other one Ephesians 3 that are just magnificent as you learn to experience who God is. His relation, its relationship to the Colossians, see some of the exact same words in the same place in that. So Colossians is the next book. Again, one of my personal favorites. I think 2 Corinthians and Colossians are two that I just, I resonate with. I love to read. I crawl into Colossians. 
learning about the ways in which God works, supreme in everything, Jesus says. It was the Father's pleasure to dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile all things to himself. It is Christ in you that is your hope of glory. It's not your ability. It's not your power. It's not your intellect. It's that Christ dwells in you and that he dwells in you. God puts you alongside, chapter 2, other brothers and sisters. And then the cross, which disarmed principalities and powers, so much that we get to live free. And he's already beginning. Colossians is now, he's beginning to warn again. As 2 Corinthians was all about false apostles that moved in. Colossians, we've got a set of false apostles moving in there too. So he's talking about, let no man tell you what to do about what you should eat or what you should drink or what you should wear or where you should meet. Let no man tell you. And yet we have this common thought today about covering and needing a leader and someone to follow to help me know how to live my life. And Colossians argues directly against that. And then after all those wonderful imperatives, we get to putting off the old man, putting on the new. But how that begins with, therefore, as God's children, holy and dearly loved. That's how you begin to see God make change in your life. You don't start from, I'm a horrible wretch and I need to do better for God. Change doesn't happen from that. So there's two major Christological passages in this book, and we've outlined them there, as well as two minor ones that are and joy and rejoicing, constant themes through. And Paul's in prison. Paul's in prison talking about this incredible life. And I think when we really learn to live loved, it's not circumstantially dependent. It's free from that. Philemon, I don't say much about Philemon. It's a one-chapter book, but it's, it's a personal letter. Onesimus is an escaped slave from his owner. He became a believer and then ran away from his boss. Paul's writing a letter back to the slave owner. It's not slavery like we saw. This is bondservant stuff. It's a little bit different than what we had in America back 150, 60 years ago. It wasn't just indentured servitude, but he, he, was, a, he was a servant. And he did leave, he got saved, and he finds Paul in Rome. And it's been a real blessing to Paul. But Paul says, you got to go back and make things right. you got to go back and make it right with Philemon. So he sends him back with this letter. And basically what the letter says, he says it in such a gentle, wonderful way. But it basically is, how can you own another brother, Philemon? So don't punish him. If he owes you anything, I'll pay it when I'm with you next. That's, that's a great thing to say. I'll take care of his debt when I come with you. And then Philippians, again, a more... Uh, I like this book. It's a little more intense. It's about the unity of the body of Christ. It's, you know, the Philippians 2 and Jesus being our example, laid down his equality with God, what we call the kenosis passage of Jesus coming and humbling himself as a servant and putting others' needs above your own. That's all Philippians 2, powerful. And then Philippians 3, which is about this magnificent obsession, as it's called. It's, he really strikes to the righteousness that trust produces. And he talks about if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I would have that more than any of you. And I consider my flesh to be rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and being found in him, not with the righteousness that's derived from observance to law, but the righteousness that trust produces. The more I trust him, the freer I live. And that's the only righteousness that Paul knows. He's defined it in Romans. He's encouraging them here to press on, take hold, move into that life. And he says, I've not considered that I've apprehended it yet. I don't want you to see that elliptical circle as another box that we're all obligated to crawl into for Pete's sakes. This is the playground of God's love and life and grace. You want to live there. But we don't all live there well. And we don't all live there every day. And part of us might be in there and part of us is out lost somewhere in anxieties and fears. But the whole knowing him is he draws us into this ever freer space. So it's not, well, we should live there to be acceptable to God. If you heard that, you heard it wrong. Or I said it wrong. Because what it is, is that's the playground. That's where I get to embrace 
what, not just to be loved, but then to live in the reality of that love by living like he loves. And Philippians moves us that direction and ends with this being content in every situation, whether I'm abounding or abasing. Again, circumstances don't determine our joy. And when they do, when you're happy when things are good and you're depressed when things are bad, then what you know is your joy isn't yet attached to the right thing. It's not attached to him being with you even when life is brutal. It's tacked in whether life's brutal or not. And again, not a condemnation point, just a place to grow, place to grow in. Then Hebrews, uh, of the general epistles, my favorite. This is the superiority of Christ. We'll talk about this more when we get to the Old Testament. This is one of those New Testament books that you want to be really conversant with when you're dealing with the Old Testament. Because he talks about how everything in the Old Testament was a shadow of a greater reality. And now Christ has fulfilled the greater reality. We don't need priests now because we have one high priest, and that's Jesus. We don't need sacrifice now because we have one sacrifice. And there's this wonderful, what the cross accomplished that none of the sacrifices could do, and that was to make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Hebrews 9 and 10, great theme there. Because of that reality, the, the cross removed my shame. No condemnation, no obligation, no I've got to earn anything from God. Now I get to freely draw near to him and drawing near to him be transformed by him. And then there's that Hebrews 10, 25 passage everybody hates about, you know, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That is the scripture that obligates you to be in a pew on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. And it's a total misapplication of the story of that verse. That verse is not people who are not wanting to go to a church meeting. These are people under persecution. And when, when they catch one, they catch others. And people are being drug out of their homes and their possessions are being repossessed. And all that's in Hebrews. And they're wondering, maybe it's better if we all just stay alone and so they can't identify us and they won't be guilt by association and they won't go ferret down these little veins of relationships and find us. And what the writer is saying, and we don't know who the writer is, was, Paul was put forward for a long time. That helped it get in the canon because everybody thought Paul did it. Then it became clear that there's nothing about this that fits Paul's style, really. And it's not really Paul's theology in, in the sense it's coming from a similar perspective. So then maybe they put together other people. I, I forget some of the ones that have been Barnabas, maybe, because it's so Jewish. Apollos, maybe. Even some have suggested Priscilla, only for the reason that she wouldn't put her name on it because no one would have published it if it was uh, by a woman. It wouldn't have gotten in the canon. But, you know, we don't know that stuff. It's interesting to kind of play with who might have written it, but it is a book that is just laden with what Jesus really accomplished to create a superior covenant, to do away with the old covenant. It's got that great litany of faith in Hebrews 11, who by faith did this. And part of the study we're going to also have, and I did this years ago in a 33-hour study, we had small group kind of discovery things. And one of the things we did was we did a statistical study of Hebrews 11. How many people living by faith found themselves in easier circumstances and how many people living by faith found themselves in more difficult circumstances. We're going to include that package of discoveries with the PDF files we put up on the website when this finally gets loaded there. And people can do that either individually or whatever. It came out when I did it about 87% of the time. What people did by faith led them to greater trouble, not less trouble. That's pretty profound. We think living by faith should make our life easy. No, not really. Not in an external sense, but it allows us to live with God in those things. Uh, Hebrews is a high, high literary quality, incredibly eloquent. It's saturated with Old Testament quotes, an incredible study on the nature and work of Jesus. And I, I, it's one that uh, I think you can read three or four times back to back straight through 
to let the weight of that book and who Jesus is for us as the sympathetic high priest, as the priest after the order of Melchizedek, as the greater sacrifice that invited us all into that life and relationship.